Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. everybody. Welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global. Today, I'm joined by Maya Bittner, co-founder of Pinch, and Sheil Manat, yeah. uh, partner in 500 Startups Fintech. Guys, welcome to the very illustrious Village Global podcast. Thank Thanks. you. Glad to be here. Yes. Perfect. So uh, today, we're going to go through a lot of things related to fintech. But first, I thought we might start with insurance. Sheil, you've been focused a lot on insurance. Insurance was, you were hearing about it, you know, it seemed like all over the place in 2016, yeah. 2017. Why were we hearing about it and what changed? Like, what, what, where's insurance right now? Are you, so you're saying you're not hearing about it as much anymore? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the reason that people got excited about insurance is it's such an old industry and it's so antiquated. And the roots of the business basically go back to shipping, to like shipping, shipping from, the, from the UK to the US and Lloyd's, like Lloyd's of London. Lloyd's was like, Lloyd's was a place that people went. And when shipping routes, were getting started, they would go and say, hey, I'll, I'll underwrite, I'll write my name below the name of the captain to say that I'm insuring the goods on that shipment. So that's the history. And like, that was like only like 400 years ago. And things shockingly have not changed that much, especially in the last hundred years. And that's true both in shipping and in insurance. And we're still governed by like really old rules. And these companies are all super old because it's really hard to start an insurance company. So the customer experience is terrible and people are always trying to rip off their insurance companies. And like, what what other business is that right. the case in? It's terrible. So these were reasons that people wanted to start new insurance companies. And then also there became this thing, the managing general agent that allowed you to act as an insurance company to the, as a the front end of an insurance company without actually having the capital requirements. So that made it very easy to start one of these companies. Uh, or relatively easy. So you have new forms of life insurance, auto insurance, home insurance, and many other things. And then I'd say like the the other component is like big data. I'll say that that word like insurance is underwriting, which is data. And we have more data about people and things than we ever had before. And we have the ability to analyze this data. So that's all what makes it exciting. And I think in 2016, as you mentioned, was like maybe like where you when you were hearing about this the right. most. I think at that time there were seed investments made in every space in insurance. In life, you had ladder, in you had ladder and quilt and uh, fabric. In auto, you had root, you had tulip, you had Hugo. In home, you had lemonade, hippo, and Ken. Uh, Ken was in 2017, but. Yeah. A lot of these seed investments were made. And then when there already are a bunch of companies in a single space, there seems to be not room for others. Although each of these companies, none of them have more than like a tiny like point of a point, right? Like they have no market share. So you're not competing against the other startups. You're competing against incumbents. But like no one's going to start a new generic life insurance company because there already are those right. companies out there. So you're not hearing about them as much anymore. And then finally, I'd say like, at the end of the day, this may play out similar to how lending played out five years before it, which is like in lending, you're selling a commodity product alone. 
So either you have an advantage in capital markets where your loans are cheaper, which is pretty hard to do unless you're a bank, or you have an advantage in distribution. And then you can you can have an advantage in underwriting and collections too, but really you probably have an advantage in capital markets and distribution. And so these insurance players, many of them don't have any advantages. So that will play out in a similar way and that the ones that have advantages on one of those things will win. Well, yeah, like I'm thinking about with insurance, I feel like there's a cool hardware tech side as far as the data collection. Sure. Like that, right? So like Metro Mile did usage-based insurance, which wasn't possible before because we didn't know how much people drove. Well, usage-based insurance has been possible for well over 20 years. Every car in the past 30 years has had no BD2 port, so you could have always done it. What they're doing is nothing new. There's a lot more... decided to do it now. Yeah, there's a lot... And and by the way, like, Allstate was doing usage-based insurance. They they experimented with it before. So you're saying IoT isn't, like, that game-changing here? That particular use case? That one isn't. Yeah, but is the... But but there's more you could do, like... Like, what you could do is... homeowner's insurance, right? If you have sensors that detect if your foundation is being flooded or something. Sure, yeah. I mean, like, the things that matter in homeowner's insurance are fire, flood, and theft. And in each of those, like, so flood, you have water pressure monitor, water monitoring systems that you could, it's just like a clip that you put under a pipe. It's super simple. costs $5 to make, like, costs like $50. Like, so it doesn't, doesn't sound like a moat. doesn't sound like. And then, and then there's smart security systems yeah. and there's smart smoke detectors. So all that is more data that you can use. But really, like, what actually moves the needle for homeowner's insurance is actually, like, catastrophe. So, like, that's where, like, being able to better underrate based on location of hurricanes. So, like, hurricane risk yeah. is done on a zip code basis. But, like, what if you live, like, on the other side of a mountain from the other house? Mm-hmm. Then, like, your hurricane risk is you totally different. block by block. Or... Yeah. So, like, you could do it house by house. Yeah. Exactly. But it's all it's all data at the end of the day. Like, there is yeah, one yeah, data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like data. Where, where within insurance are you excited to invest right now? I'm still excited in all of them. I think, like, for me, it's about, like, do you have a distribution and underwriting advantage? And if not, I'm not interested. And the vast majority of companies I see don't. And what are examples of what that might look like? Yeah. So, um, so in my uh, in my portfolio, I'll just say like, so Kin, it's a homeowners insurance company. They, based on just your address, they can underwrite you for insurance and give you like a binding quote, kinkin.com. And that's a huge advantage because they convert so much better than everyone else. So like, when you go to like some stupid page to fill out an insurance quote. And like you end up with Kin and they can say, here's a quote, click on it to bind. That is so much more effective than like you spending 40 minutes filling out forms. So that's an advantage. It's just that they collect data from like 20 different sources and use that to to make an underwriting decision. So that's, that's an advantage that I look for. Another example is in life insurance. I have a company called Mira Financial. They actually, they work specifically with people that are high risk. Mm -hmm. So like diabetics, for example. Diabetics have a terrible time getting life insurance right now. Like, if you go to any insurance company and say, like, life insurance company and say, like, go fill out the reform and then you then you click, like, I'm a diabetic, you now have, like, 50 more screens to fill out. And then ultimately they never underwrite you anyway. So Mira said, hey, like, we can use a bunch of data about this person. Like, we, they can connect in their credit cards. They can connect in their fitness trackers, like all this stuff. And we can assess whether this person has controlled their diabetes or not. And if they've controlled their diabetes, they're actually at no more risk than the other person. So like we can use that data and that's what, that's what they do. And so they, they, their distribution advantages, they take diabetic patients from existing life insurers who don't want that patient. So they get them for free because that life insurer wasn't doing anything with it anyway. 
So that's a distribution advantage. Well, this is cool. It almost sounds like the opposite of the normal startup story, which is can you innovate on the product faster than the existing companies can leverage their distribution? That's right. But now it's like innovate on distribution. Yeah. So, so like, yes. Can you innovate on product? Absolutely. Like, is Lemonade a better experience than, you know, some other renters insurance state farm? Yes, Absolutely. But does that really move the needle? I don't think so. Yeah. Lemonade is spending a shitload on distribution. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like, yes, they have a better product. Now, what, what they're counting on is, like, a multi-year strategy. Like, renter's insurance is a shit product. Like, you should, like, anyone starting a renter's insurance company, like, I would tell them not to. You make 10 bucks no a margin. month. Yeah. Like, there's no business there. How are you going to acquire a customer? So why is Lemonade acquiring renters? They're acquiring renters in the hopes that, like, you renter three years from now will buy a house and you will, and you will, you're so used to using lemonade that you'll love the experience and not even shop around. Right. So that's their long play, but it's a really long play. So that's why they need to raise so much money. That's right. When I think when I think when I invested, I think you were building an insurance product. How did you sort of navigate the idea maze that is insurance and what have you learned during that process? Yeah. So ultimately we were looking at financial stability And can we use an insurance product to help with financial stability? You know, we saw this story happening again and again of somebody has a random bad thing happen to them. They can't pay for it. More fees and charges pile up and it's just this spiral down. So we wanted to stop that spiral at the start. And what we dug into is the structure that she was talking about, right? So being a managing general agent of another insurance company, selling their renter's insurance product but customizing a lot of the features and trying to do that product innovation, creating a better experience, selling it on an app, stuff like that. And what we were trying to do is create an insurance product for the financial shocks we saw people actually facing. Now that's stuff like getting your car towed, it's having medical bills, car repairs, things like that. And being able to help people out at that time with maybe uh, like a zero interest loan, and then they can go get their car from the tow yard, they can take their car to work, they can pay back the loan, you know, and it kind of stops that at the beginning. Yeah. So zooming out, should we start, you run an entirely focused fintech fund. Yeah. How do you subdivide the world? Is it, you know, lending? Banking, investing, like how, how do you sort of see the world? Sure. And I've changed my views on this many times, but I think there's like, so like, let's say broadly stepping out, there's like disruptors, mm-hmm. like those that are disrupting financial institutions. And then those are, they're enablers. So like I invest in both. I think I am pretty heavily skewed on the disruptor side. Right. Like 75% of my investments are probably disruptors. I think like the truly large companies are going to own the control the customer. How do you differentiate between disruptors and enablers? So enabler is a company that their customer either is a financial institution or insurance company or like goes through a financial. Can give an example of a product company. Sure. So like one in my portfolio is called Indio or yeah, let's just, let's just use Indio. So Indio sells software into commercial insurance brokerages. So like, Super unsexy business. And enablers are generally enterprise sales focused. Disruptors tip more often go to the consumer or SMB, which SMBs are basically consumers anyway. So, so that's like at a broad lens. And then within that, there are all these other things. So there's like personal financial management, wealth management, two different things, insurance, there's capital markets, broadly speaking, there's lending, there's like crowdfunding, and I've invested in all these categories. Right. And how do you, in terms of, you said you mentioned you've changed your mind on as much times. What's sort of the evolution and how you've, how you've seen space? It's actually like, I used to like break it down in, in that way. And now I don't really. Right. Like now I don't think about like, what are my investments in each category? Although like when you ask the question, that is exactly what I was right. thinking about. But like, yeah. I haven't necessarily sat down and thought about that in a while. I, I think I'm invested, I'm interested in investing across the spectrum. 
still. And there are always sectors that go in and out of fashion. And like in my fintech career, I've seen it over the past, call it 10 years. Early on, like when I started, like fintech was just payments. And that's when you had Square and Stripe start and my company, Fee Fighters, which is less known. <laughs> and and then like and now to build a generic payments company is going to be very difficult like there are probably some opportunities in the blockchain but aside, sorry in that blockchain would be another category right. but blockchain is applies to fintech which is not right. the vast majority of blockchain so anyway it's probably going to be tough to build a generic payments company right now because most innovation was done 10 years ago Square and Stripe came out then like you had like peer-to-peer lending first on the consumer side lending club and then like on the SMB side funding circle cabbage all these other guys and then you had Bitcoin, like the 1.0 in like 2013. That was like pretty crazy. And then insurance and then now like blockchain enabled stuff, I would say is hot again. And you mentioned on insurance, you have people who have a distribution advantage. Do you extend that broader thesis into, you know, beyond insurance and fintech or how, how do you describe? Right. Yeah. It seems like it must be the same with lending since they're both selling commodities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you look at a company... If you look at a lender that doesn't have a distribution advantage, like they don't last very long. Mm-hmm. And this is a time and time again. Mm-hmm. And I see these companies get funded and like, I know like two years from now they're fucked because their cost, like their acquisition cost is going to be through the roof for the product they're selling. What is their advantage over somebody else who has both a lower cost of acquisition, a lower cost of capital and a lower cost of acquisition? So what should founders who are trying to build fintech companies or want to build fintech companies think about in terms of how they develop the distribution advantage. It's like, who can you, who can you align yourself with? Or like, what is the other product that, what is your hook? So like, is there something else you could be start by selling with start by selling that ultimately gets you into a higher margin product? In which case, like if you're a rock star, like then we can buy that thesis. So like, for example, the company I was just on the phone with is Flexport. Flexport is a customs broker. Effectively, they started four and a half years ago. And so what they do is basically if like, if you're Nest and you have a hundred thousand thermostats in Shenzhen, they can get them here. And they started out just by doing the customs brokerage piece, but now they do a lot of the stuff end to end and they actually now just got a couple planes. But, but I think about this company as a fintech company and I always have. And now finally last year they decided to like actually do the fintech component of it. And that was like, okay, we're in this one business, which is like shipping and like, what do they, what do our customers need? Well, they need, they also need loans and we have all the things that they need that, that we can do. So we have distribution because we have these customers and they need this money and we have underwriting because like they continue to ship with us time and time again. And then we have, we have collections because like we have the freaking inventory. So like they're perfectly suited to be a lender and they will. And like lending will be a huge portion of their business going forward. Like in two years from now, like lending will be a bigger part of their business than the rest of the business. And so it's, it's a fintech company. Well, as an entrepreneur, I always get really nervous about pitching a phase one, phase two company. Totally. Right. Like what's the reception for that with investors? So if your phase one company can make money already. Got it. Then it's great. Got it. If you're like, we're going to lose a ton of money for several years. If it can't, then like it has to be a social network. (laughs) And like you have to have some massive network effects that are going to make it work. And Maya, as you put your, you're obviously an entrepreneur, but your angel investing hat on. Where in fintech are, are you most excited about or where do you see yourself wanting to spend time or encourage entrepreneurs to pursue? Yeah, I'm really excited about still pinches excited about financial stability, but I'm excited about other people working on it too. I think we're in kind of a rocky place in the United States right now and that many people's income has gone from this extremely steady and predictable state to 
kind of coming in pieces and coming from different sources and it makes it super hard for them to plan and manage their bills. So there's a ton of cool companies that are working on stuff like this, people doing savings, companies like Even that smooth out the paycheck. But that's I just kind of like where my personal interests lie because I think it's a really big problem right now. Cool. So I agree. And I, I like also care deeply about the problem and like sort of my, the tagline for my fund is financial services for the rest of us. So completely aligns. Cool. So let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I'm looking to build something within FinTech. Let's actually go through Shields. I think you mentioned like six or seven categories. Let's go through one by one and I'll act out the entrepreneur looking to build out a company in space. Cool. Let me know sort of where the red flag, like where should I not go? Where should I go? How should sure. I go? So maybe let's start with personal finance. Yeah. So how do you think, like, what companies are you excited about in that space there? What opportunities, how do we think about sure. where I should not be looking to build? What's yeah. Uh, well, I can start with like where you should not be looking to build. Okay. And that's, you should not be looking to build a better mint.com. So there are so many companies doing this and I see a new one like every month and it's a really hard business. Like everyone can scale to a hundred thousand users and then beyond that, they all die every single one or they get acquired for a small amount of money. And the reason is like there's nothing differentiated. People stop using the app and then you start, you basically have a bunch of users that you can get cheaply. And then beyond that, you have to start paying a shitload of money. It never works to pay the money. We have a company that went through our, our uh, accelerator and, and we invested in, obviously, called Albert, albert.com. And they started out with this notion. And I, even though I hate this like overall concept of PFM because I know it never works, I got convinced in Albert because I love the leadership. And, and they, they, what they convinced me on was it's not enough to say, like, here's the action you should take. Here's, so, so 1.0 version of this was like lending tree. Like you fill out a form and a bunch of people send you leads. So that's like, okay, fine. Like lending tree is amazing at SEO. Mm-hmm. That's why they have a good business. Otherwise it wouldn't be. Next version of this was mint. Like we know a little bit about you, but we serve you ads that are the same as the ads everyone else gets. And that was fine. And then like the much better version is credit karma, which we're also investor in and credit karma, like they have your credit, credit data. So they can give you a super targeted ad and you're super likely to convert. And if you're super likely to convert, they can make a shitload of money. So the next version of that was like Albert and Albert was like, we're going to do everything for you. Like you don't even need to shop around. Like we'll do it. You just click yes and we'll fill out all the forms. We'll do everything for you. And where that fell apart a little bit is like the APIization was not there enough yet. So like they were having companies build APIs for them, but like, of course, like that's like not high on their priority list. So, so they, they actually pivoted like almost a year ago into this other product, which is like, financial advice via text message. So I use it, like I can ask it, like what's this thing on my credit card statement? Like, can you, can you work with me? Can you like fix this? And they do. And it's awesome. And it's, it's a super low cost product, but they have a ton of consumer SaaS. So they they charge money for it. But if credit card is doing so well because they know your credit information and they can send you super targeted stuff, is there opportunity for somebody to collect a bunch of other data? I don't know, like location or social graph or things like that, and then send you really targeted offers based on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Credit Karma is working to get more and more data. So last year they started doing people's taxes. They acquired a little company to do people's taxes. And if you think about the information you get when you do somebody's taxes, it's amazing. So that's super valuable. Everything that describes them as a demographic. Yes. Exactly. So that, that information is super valuable. And then they do, they do a couple other things, but that's, that's like the bulk of it. And like, that's much more valuable than like where you are. Right. So uh, have you seen Grove? Yeah. Can you describe Grove? And yeah. Where you so Grove it? is a financial planner basically. And so if you, there are, I think there's like, 
a large number of people in America use financial planners. And how do you, like, if you were, let's say you had the money to do it, like, how would you find one? You'd like, what would you do? Like Google financial planner or would you, you'd like ask around to your friends, right? So like, and then if you go to a financial planner, they all use the same old software called Money Guide Pro that's been around for like 30 years, like was started in DOS or something. And they give you these like shitty reports. It's a really long process. It's not like it doesn't need to be. So Grove says, hey, pay us $600 a year and we'll give you a financial plan that actually makes sense and you can act on it very easily. And so I, I like that business a lot. I think like I think more a lot of Americans do use financial plans and like these financial planners are not actually adding value and they right. can be a lot more effective. I think of it a lot of it a lot like the first startup that I really fell in love with, this is like twelve years ago, was called it's called Redfin. It's a public company now. Yeah. So like the reason I fell in love with it is like I'd been buying houses already at that point and I I love the idea of using software to make a real estate agent 10 times more effective. And that's what Redfin does. Totally. And so that's sort of along the lines of what Grove does. Yeah. A few examples I hear quite a bit in terms of subspaces within this. One is uh, people trying to personal finance management within couples. Yeah. Personal finance management within couples is very difficult. Like there aren't that many. First of all, like every couple has a different way of managing it. And maybe there's a few ways. There's like share everything, different accounts, like one joint account, different accounts. Still, like, I it's I have not found it to be a deep enough problem. And like, if you're going to go after PFM, you have to go. You have to go over the after the whole full market, right? Not some subset of it. But what about uh, kids? Like, yeah, credit card, credit cards for kids. Or anyone trying to help kids? Yeah, there's a company called Current Current.com um, that's going after that space. I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking into it. I think there's probably something there, but. I'm also a little skeptical. It's funny with Pinch, we do to build your credit, right? We have so many parents signing up on behalf of their kids. Yeah. Uh, either their kids who are in college, in college or younger. And we say like, oh, sorry, you know, we can only do this for people who are 18 or older. But they're trying to set their kids up to have good credit from the outset. Yeah. Um, and we see that all the time. That's oh, smart. I think long game is pretty interesting. Play games, you know, they reward you for yeah. money. Yeah, absolutely. So Prizeling Savings is like super great in theory. Like yeah. I love the idea of pricing savings. Probably it should come from a bank and it's hard. It's hard for a startup to make money doing it. Why well, aren't any banks offering it? There are regulatory reasons. They're not. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you split up finance management too. One was person. And then the other was wealth management. So like wealth fund betterment, like got it. those guys of the world. And I've never like loved those businesses because if you look at like what they're changing, is like product side and the product side, like what they do, like I could build their model in Excel probably like in a day and then it would just be like implementing it. So those are very difficult businesses because you you end up like ending up at zero margin. Right. So like they charge like 25 basis points and I think like their average customer has $20,000 in it. So 25 basis points from $20,000 is 50 bucks. 50 bucks a year is not a lot of money with which to acquire customers. So are you bearish in all these or winners? No, no, no. Like, I, I think that, like, there are opportunities to succeed there. And probably some of them will end up partnering with, like, like Betterment already partners with the RIAs. And, like, there's a good business to be built there. But I do think, like, the product that Schwab and Vanguard have are pretty good, free, mm-hmm. effectively. So, like, I'm not sure. Like, they've created a new category, Welfare and Betterment have. But, like, at the end of the day, like, all the banks will have their own robos. Got it. What about lending? Again, it's, like, distribution advantage based. Yeah. 
So, like, if you have a distribution advantage, I can be super excited about it. Right. Like, does lending have a play? I'm thinking about your diabetes life insurance company. Yeah. Right? Like, lending for a very specific group of people that are turned down from other lenders. Sure. So, yeah. So, we have a company in our portfolio that's the same as that company, pretty much, as the diabetes company I mentioned. Cool. But in lending, it's called Bloom Credit. So, Bloom Credit, they take, they take declines from lenders. So, let's say... You apply to Lending Club. You need to have a 620 FICO to get a loan at Lending Club. Well, actually, now Lending Club has a shittier product, but but let's generally speaking, you need a 620 FICO to get a loan at Lending Club. Let's say you have a 580. What does Lending Club do? They just say, oh, sorry, you're rejected. What they should do is say, hey, you're rejected, but like here are a few things you can do to improve your credit and then come back to us. So what Bloom Credit does is say, we're going to take your declines to the lender. Like So we'll take your declines, rehab their credit, and then send them back to you for their loan. And so that's super powerful, like B2B to C route in. I'm so glad we're talking about this. I feel like the thing I see again and again with new entrepreneurs or proto-entrepreneurs is that they radically underestimate the cost of acquiring customers. And they come up with this business model that works great if you get customers in for free, but they have no strategic way of getting customers in for free. And I'm like, this is going to cost you a lot of money to acquire these customers, and it, it falls apart with that, so... Yeah. I like that we're kind of hammering on this. Totally. totally. And then there are there are companies that have been able to acquire customers cheaply. I think like the two that come to mind are Robinhood. They now now Robinhood does spend a lot on advertising, but like relatively speaking, their cost of acquisition has been pretty low. And it's because what they offered was so dramatic. It was like zero cost trades. And now if it was one dollar trades, it probably wouldn't have even been for it. Because it's zero cost trades, you're like, oh shit, like how is that even possible? Like I'm gonna switch over to them. So Robinhood has been worked really well. They probably have like the lowest cost of capital, uh, lowest cost of acquisition of any um, trading business, but also like they don't make that much money per user. And then Revolut out of the UK and Estonia, similar thing. How do you think about there's some of the how do you think international? Yeah. Do you have to have that like geo like expertise? Like, how, like if I'm when I'm looking at a company internationally, and if I'm looking to build one as an entrepreneur, like yeah, should I just stick here? Like, how do you have yeah, it, it tends to be difficult for somebody who does not know the market to like enter into a market, but it has been done. And like, you know, in Africa specifically, there, there are a few companies or a few lenders in Africa, like Talon Branch, yeah. um, that are both based here ish, well, here in, in Los Angeles. And they're both doing very well. Now, like, basically, both those companies, they are an app that you can install on your Android phone. They take in all the data from your phone, who you called, who your friends are on Facebook, how often you top up your. Prepaid, prepaid account on your mobile phone and use that to make an underwriting decision off of you and then give you a small dollar loan that once you pay back, you get a higher dollar loan. And really, like, yes, they take in all this data from your phone, but like the most useful data is like, did you pay back that first loan? And like, that's the yeah. most useful data. <laughs> and so like that first loan is basically marketing expense. So these are super great businesses. But they're great because, like, nobody was going after that space in, in Africa. It was so difficult to get a loan. So be, they're going after it with super high interest rates. So these are, like, 100-plus percent interest rate loans that people are paying, which sounds awful, but it's much better than they could get anywhere else. How do you as an investor, investors think about investing in international fintech companies? I, I, I do it all the time. I, li- I like in, investing internationally. I would say, like, I've done less of it recently because – I realize, like sometimes I just don't know market well enough to know all the players involved. Well, and I think from a regulation perspective, like in Europe, insurance is much less regulated. I think it's much easier to innovate on insurance products in Europe. Yeah, and, and the same is true of banks, oh, like all okay. the neo banks. Yep, yep. And and twenty six Revolut, Monzo, 
they're all in Europe and like they're all theoretically coming here this year. But That's what I was going to ask is like, is the plan to get successful enough to expand to the United States? Yeah, often. I mean, like, like you mentioned investing internationally, I think like one challenge is like the markets are never big enough, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe there's no competition. And then like, mm-hmm. if you do really well, you can expand. So like, you know, Revolut founders from Estonia, it can work. And, and Revolut's all over Europe. So is Entry6. One of my best investments is this company. It's not a fantastic company. It's a company called Rappi, which is Instacart yeah. in America. Yeah. They're, they're actually, they're from, the guy's from Cali in Colombia. Like, Cali's not even a place that... Totally. And one of the reasons they're interesting is because, you know, the labor cost is so cheap there. Exactly. It makes much more sense. Yeah. Business. So I'm curious, are there similar examples within fintech that here it's too expensive or too much regulation, but elsewhere are actually just work better as business models? Yeah. So, so like... Over the past couple of months, everybody's talking about privacy, Facebook, yeah. whatever, whatever. These companies in Africa, like, you could never do that in America. Like, you could never take all that data. Are you kidding me? Like, there's so many laws that they, they would be breaking. So, like, people pretty much everywhere, like, the U.S. and Germany are the worst. But, like, all of Western Europe, forget about, like, all of Western Europe and the U.S., like, people care about privacy a lot. Everywhere else, people are totally willing to, to like, forego privacy in exchange for better services. And like that's a huge leg up if you're starting a new company in those in those places. Why is Nubank from Brazil so interesting? I haven't spent much time with them, but I think like the market w- is just like super wide open for new entrants. And actually, there there are a few other new entrants that are also doing really well in uh, in Brazil. Yeah, just like they've been chronically underserved. And like there was a big downturn a few years ago in Brazil, and like everybody was like out of the market. Yeah, and. That's when they started. They started at a good time. Sheila, my favorite thing that I learned from doing Pinch is how many of our customers don't have a checking account. They just use prepaid debit cards. Totally. For everything. And it's sort of abandoned banks. Are there cool startups that are doing prepaid debit card innovation? Yeah. Well, actually, so question for you. Yeah. Those customers, are they all millennials? All of your customers that have that? Mostly, yeah. Yeah. So so part of this is, is due to the Card Act, 2008, 2009, actually. So basically, like... Banks, credit cards can no longer market to consumers on college campuses. And they can't market to anyone under the age of 21, basically. So because of that, less people have credit cards than they did before. And a lot of them are using prepaid debit. And it's just a difficult market, so it's hard to innovate on. It's just like a market that that you don't make money. You just don't make much money in payments. So like, you know, like the interchange amount, like interchange that you make on prepaid debit is pretty minuscule. So interchange was interchange on debit cards in general was regulated down. Also in 2009 went into effect in like 2011 by the Durban Act. So like regulated interchange. Now like there's ways around it. If you have a, if you're working with a sponsor bank that has less than $10 billion in assets, then you're not subject to the rules. So you do that. But still, it's just like a tough business to make money in. Yeah, and we had we had thought it was all lifestyle changes, like people don't want to commit to a bank and things like that. But I didn't realize there's all this regulation leading up. Well, so it's both. I think you're absolutely right. Like if you grew up in like in the financial crisis, you right. probably fucking hate banks, and all you read is like Wells Fargo's opening bullshit accounts. Like, of course you hate the banks, and like you're like, why would I work with a bank? So you don't want to work with a bank. And so like because of that, there may be an opportunity for these new players out of Europe that are coming in the U.S. Like, maybe there's an opportunity for them. I think Simple, we were invested in Simple, was trying to be this. And I think they were just too early. Like, I think all these people, they weren't they weren't around en masse four or five years ago when Simple was doing this. And they are now, like, right. to your point. Let's see if you want to list uh, Capital Markets. Yeah, Capital Markets. So we have a couple plays here. Like, we have one called Neighborly, which is in the bond space. Yeah. We invest in Neighborly, too. Great. Yeah. Um, so... 
I think in capital markets, there's so many different businesses that can be built and be huge. And like you're fighting against these massive incumbents. And so you have to have some, some advantage, right? Like, because like, how is neighborly going to unseat Goldman Sachs in the world of mini bond? It's going to be tough (laughs) and they have tough boys, but, but they have a few things at their back that, that they can work on. Sort of related to capital markets and wealth management, we have a company called Epic. So Epic, they take they take your existing portfolio and strip it of stuff that you don't want. So let's say like you're Mike Bloomberg and you care a lot about gun control, and you, and you look at he, you look at his through his portfolio and he's like he's invested in indices. So he's like invested in indices. That means he's heavily invested into Walmart because every indice is heavily into Walmart. So like Walmart's the largest gun retailer in the world. And how does that foot with his conscience? Like I'm heavily invested in Walmart and I hate guns. So what Ethic does is they take your existing portfolio and strip it of the bad stuff, but then match performance. So they like work backwards, create a portfolio that exactly matches with the performance you would get, like finding something in analog to Walmart. And like, it's not just strip and remove it, strip and replace. It's like a bunch of different things to weight your performance similarly. And this is, this is doing super well. Like a lot of people are super interested in it. Like this wave of ESG, um, environmental sustainable governments, has like really come a long way in the past, even the past two years since these guys started. I would say like the past six months, they're seeing a tidal wave of opportunity for themselves. We talked about insurance. We'll talk about blockchain again. Was there a number one or two spaces? I I think I mentioned like, oh, actually, we can talk about like reg tech, regulation tech. I think like the real opportunity here is being the regulatory layer for other startups, for example. So like... Like we've solved something like, and unfortunately, like nothing good is coming to mind, but okay. So here's one like bettable. So I don't don't know anything about the company or how it's doing. I haven't followed it in years, but like what they were trying to do was to like, say anybody can build their, their betting stuff on top of our betting license. So that's a great opportunity. And actually like in some ways, Plaid is doing that. Mm -hmm. Plaid is saying like, we've, we'll fight the regulators like we'll go through and it's it's really more technology than it is regulation, but like we'll build the technology and allow you to use it. Right. And so there's an opportunity there. Yeah. And this is like an infrastructure company, right? Yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about managing infrastructure. Yeah, we haven't. Um, but yeah, in general, like it makes sense. The problem is the incumbents are just like have so much power. But Plaid is a great example. Now another another example that I'm not invested in is called Synapse. Synapse FI. They basically do all the backend stuff to, to provision a bank account for you. So, like, if you think about what that enables, and now, like, if Synapse, I think Synapse is going after a bank charter, or eventually will go after a bank charter potentially. Now, like, if they had a bank charter, what that enables is so amazing. It's like an API bank. So, like, every company would then be provisioning bank accounts. So, like, Uber right now, they open like. They're, all their users or a lot of their drivers do not have bank accounts. So Uber is the largest opener of bank accounts in America, in the world probably. And what Uber could be doing if this service, this mythical service that does not exist, existed, would be like, they would be Uber bank accounts. Right. And that'd be super awesome. So like what Plaid enables you to do from like a personal finance perspective, like this would enable for like every marketplace. Airbnb, you could have an Airbnb bank account. Right. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. And I, I would love to see it. Yeah. So when you mentioned blockchain based that sort of fintech companies that made me think perhaps you're not you're not a crypto bull. I say like personally, I have invested quite a bit in crypto and like I'm an LP in several crypto right. funds, but I don't think it's prudent for my fund to be to be right. deep into it. It's not like some of them are fintech, some of them aren't. 
So like I've invested in a few that are, are very fintech related, but I have not invested in others that I don't think are. So what are examples of, well, are these enablers or disruptors? Like blockchain based? Uh, yeah, both. Mostly disruptors. So like, I'll give you an example of one. One is called Spring Labs. So this company is a credit bureau in blockchain. So what they do is there's all this data that people have that we never had before. So there's like rent data, like what Pinch has. There's cell phone top-up data. There's like any number of data that we have that is useful for underwriting a customer that we never had before. And that's just in the U.S., but internationally, there's like it's a million times more valuable because there's nothing existing right now. So these guys taking all that data and have a marketplace for data. So the coin... Spring Coin will be used right. in that marketplace. And it's a super credible team. They started Avant, which is a $2 billion company. And now we're starting this as like an offshoot of Avant. And so we back that. Yeah. I've seen a lot of companies that are like, so people trying to mint for crypto or wealth front for crypto. Like where, yeah. will these, where will these work and where will they fall short? Like, I think the mint, the mint for crypto, like there's like, I think that's going to be a very difficult business. Like, First of all, Mint itself is a very difficult business. So like Mint for crypto is a much smaller market. I don't know how you're going to make money. I mean, the way to make money is like what CoinTracker does, which is like, we'll do your taxes. So like the Mint for crypto is just a distribution thing. Like we'll give this away, but then we'll make money through taxes, through through doing your taxes for you in crypto because it's very hard. I think that maybe there's something there. Aside from that, I think Mint for crypto sucks. It's a stupid right. business. You know, tell me how you're going to actually make money first, right. like when you're starting this company. Wealthfront for crypto, kind of similar. It's like like a year ago, a lot of people were pitching me the Robinhood for crypto. Well, Robinhood's the Robinhood for crypto. So why shouldn't Wealthfront be the Wealthfront for crypto? By the way, the funniest one that pitched me was Cobbinhood. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> where, where within crypto finance do you see like, oh, this is something that either translates to, to crypto or blockchain or is this something totally new? Yeah. I think like, I think payments is still super exciting. Like, I mentioned that like, all, all payments was done like 10 years ago, but actually like there's some opportunities in payments to create a new payments network and you need a lot of things to do it right. But I think with the right team, you could get that in place. And so, and where you'd start is like high risk payments. So, so payments that have high chargebacks. So if you have a higher than 1% chargeback, you're kind of like fucked as a company and like you need to keep on switching providers. So like this is a perfect example for crypto and high risk pay- payments don't actually necessarily mean like marijuana and stuff like that. They can actually like, like travel and furniture, super high risk categories. Anytime when you're, when the time between you pay and you receive the good, there's a lot of time. So travel and payments, travel and furniture, then like chargebacks go up because you, you get the furniture and you're like, oh, I didn't order that. Or, or along the way, you're like, oh, I don't want that anymore. I'm just going to charge it back. My, where, where are you most excited about, if at all, within crypto or blockchain? Well, I think the two standard examples where blockchain technology makes a ton of sense is with identity. Yeah. And with credit bureaus. Absolutely. Right? Like reputation management. So, and I'm really excited about those classic examples. I think, you know, the credit bureau makes a ton of sense, but the problem is how do you get the data yeah. and ingest it into that system? Um, I haven't seen any cool identity companies, though. Have you seen those? Yeah. So, well, first of all, like these credit and identity are inherently linked. Yeah. So these guys are doing identity and, and credit, but there's the other players involved are like, there's like Civic, which is an identity based, um, and they have a coin they raised, like they did an ICO last year. It was, it was one of the first like well-known ones. They raised $33 million in an ICO. Vinny Lingham's like a well-known entrepreneur. He started it. And there, there are a few others. Yeah, I just think there's an opportunity for all this cool identity on blockchain stuff to intersect with like the crazy privacy Facebook stuff that everyone's talking about Yeah, uh, in an interesting way. And have you thought about it as an entrepreneur incorporating that into, into your product or company or how have you thought about it? So when I think about it, I think it could make a ton of sense. 
and that I think it's not the hardest problem we have to solve and that we should always solve the hardest problem first. So as I'm saying with the data, it's like right now we're solving the hardest problem, which is how do we get distribution to customers? How do we build a brand? How do we get access to all the data Later, if it makes sense to then take this data we have in a MySQL database and put it on the blockchain instead, sure. then we'll do that. Um, and that might make a ton of sense, but it doesn't seem highest yeah. priority now. So like expanding on that, like why, so why a credit bureau on the blockchain makes sense is like, so I described this marketplace aspect. That's one piece. Another piece is like Equifax got hacked last year and that fucked up shit for a lot of people. If you had built that on the blockchain, actually like everyone would kind of have their own data silos and like mm-hmm. hacking, hacking it would mean hacking, like getting a small amount of data wouldn't be worth your while. Yeah. Well, so. and we really struggle. So the way that we submit data to the credit bureaus, we submit to all three credit bureaus. We include all of our customers, personally identifiable information every time we submit data. Yeah. So there's no tokenization process. Instead we say like, here's Eric Kornberg, here's his date of birth. Here's his social security number. Here's his address. And here are his rent payments. And we do that every single month with each new rent payment. And so it seems like it's just a system that is asking to fall down in some ways that I think blockchain doesn't have these problems. Tokenization stuff doesn't have these problems. It would be easily preventable. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, because you guys looked it up at stable coins and privacy coins at all, and that's sort of broader interest of the question. What do you think is not just currently bullshit about crypto or blockchain, but even in five or 10 years, just, or 15, 20, it just won't happen in terms of what's being promised today. Clearly the bullshit is like, a lot of the ICOs are, are like claiming that like they've disrupted venture capital is pretty bullshit. And like the way that we know is like the number of companies that like applied to my accelerator got rejected and then did an ICO where they raised tens of millions of dollars from the public. But the reason I rejected them is because like when I met them face to face, like they were idiots and like there's no way to tell that from their white paper which they had professionally written and like and these guys you know it's it's crazy that like people are like oh yeah like who needs this industry well like there's like yes is am i do i admit that venture capital is is, like not the best system yes but like fundraising should be hard and like you should have to meet people face to face right so like i don't think that has necessarily been disrupted and like I think there's something to like tokenizing securities, but I don't think that like it's necessarily solving a lot of problems. Yeah. What um sort of leading towards their closing here, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions or biggest mistakes entrepreneurs have when when starting a debt company? Where we talked you, about we talked about distribution. We talked about distribution. I think that was like Which I really do think yeah. is one of the biggest ones. And then I think, you know, particularly in fintech, what you're looking at is you're looking at all of the difficulties that somebody has in creating like a social app, right? Like building consumer trust and gaining adoption and building an app, plus all the regulatory hurdles of building a fintech company, right? So working with banks and incumbents and regulators and things like that. So you kind of have like two big hard problems and I actually have really been encouraging people to look at so accelerators like 500 or there are many because they have the connections and I think I talk to entrepreneurs and by nature a lot of them are like I can do this all on my own but I really think the value of an accelerator is that they have those connections to regulators and people that you don't know and they can really like give you a leg up yeah I think that's I think that's partially true that that's totally true and like I think that fits with what I was going to say which is it always takes longer than you think to get these deals done. Uh-huh. And, and like, you know, the, the, the company that you're working with either for distribution or for some other part of your business, like, like you might have 18 months of runway, like when you're starting out and like, they don't care. Like the one year that it took you to get through their process, 
like it doesn't impact them, but like you just wasted most of the money that you had. Yeah. And so that's the part that really sucks. And then of course that's distribution. Like we talked about. What about uh, other investors shield in terms of what do you think that they underrate or misunderstand or, uh, or just make mistakes when, when you see other people investing in fintech businesses, like what do they do? Yeah, it's interesting. I think like there's a lot of stuff that people who invest in fintech, like in fintech know well and distribution is a large part of it. And then when you like, sometimes we'll see a large round done in a company without any like fintech investors involved. And then, and we're like, why did they invest in that company? And it's, it's like, you can get really attracted to an idea. Now that being said, like, it's probably like, I don't know if any fintech investors invested in Robinhood. Actually, that's not true. They did. Howard, Howard did from social leverage, but, but like I looking at Robinhood probably would have missed it. I probably would have said, Oh, it's, it's going to be really hard to make money in that business, which it is, but well, still. Yeah, I mean, there was Zecco for many years, right? Exactly. Zero dollar stock trades. Exactly. Hard to turn it into a business. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, there have been many others along the way. And, I, and so it's like, Oh, what's, what's Robinhood really doing differently? Mm-hmm. And like, sure. They have a great app, but like, yeah. Okay. Right. Reminds me of uh, digital health and healthcare in some ways. And that yeah. Distribution is really important sometimes when like product doesn't even matter as much. And also that, you know, the experts are so jaded. Uh, totally. In so many ways. So like, yeah, like it's going to be really hard to convince me to invest in a payments business. Right. That's, like, that's what I know. <laughs> me too in a rap battle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there have been several. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, thank you guys for joining us. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thanks. It's fun. Yeah, super fun. Yeah.